Well, um, I told this story a little bit different first service. Um, probably over 12, 13, it had to be over 13 years ago because my youngest wasn't born yet. Um, I was first, we were first introduced to the Mockingbird in Fairfield. Um, we were having a fun family um, sleepover on the back deck. And um, they said there was just four of us at the time. And uh, if you don't know anything about the mockingbirds, they're, they're remarkable little animals in the sense that they learn to mimic sounds that they hear, right? Like horns and whistles or car alarms. <clears throat> so we're sleeping out on the back deck, and uh, my wife and I are on an arrow bed, and my kids are on the deck. And, and about 3 o'clock in the morning, this, this mockingbird starts singing, only whistles and car alarms. And, um, and we all kind of wake up because the thing just does not stop. My oldest boy, he gets so frustrated, he runs into his room and he grabs his airsoft gun. You know, it shoots plastic babies, so you environmentalists out there isn't going to hurt the bird. But he tries to set off a round of, of plastic babies, and, and this, this mockingbird, just undaunted, just continued to sing at the top of its voice. And it wouldn't stop. And, um, and finally, half the family went in went into their own bedrooms, and my, I think my daughter and I were the only ones left out there. That was my first experience with the Mockingbird. That was like, I don't know, like I said, 13, 14 years ago. Well, we've since come to love the Mockingbird. Um, they come like every spring, and uh, I think it was two springs ago, maybe three, um, we had a couple make a nest in our backyard. And uh, we started to hear this whistling noise, like over and over again, but then it would stop, and then it'd come back again. And we realized that that would happen whenever mom or dad flew into the nest. And we realized there are babies in there, baby chicks. So we watched. It was kind of like a little science experiment. And just watch these little chicks. And every time that the parents would leave, they'd go quiet. Man, I don't know what they did to train those chicks to be quiet, but we could use some of that training in our own families, right? <laughs> when you leave, the kids are quiet. Well, they get, they, they, those little chicks were quiet, and then they, they, as soon as mom or dad would come back with a worm or something, they start, you know? So we watched them. We just loved watching these mockingbirds, as irritating they, as they are at 3 a.m. in the morning. Well, one day, um, one of those little chicks fell out of the nest, and it hadn't learned to fly yet. So it's kind of like hopped around our backyard, just kind of you know, flapping its wings, but it wasn't able to go anywhere. It wasn't even really able to fly up onto a branch. It was just hopping around our yard. And I, I knew enough about birds to know I shouldn't touch it, lest the parent reject it. So, and I, honestly, I don't think they would have let me because they would dive bomb anything that came close to it, the mom and dad. So, uh, so we watched this little bird um, hop around in our backyard. And I got to tell you, like, I felt just compassion for this little thing. It's like, it's like one of my own kids, you know? It's just like, come on, buddy, you can make it. And we watched it day after day. And I, I kept thinking to myself, I wonder if they're, because we have a couple feral cats in the, in the neighborhood, I wonder if a cat's going to get this thing. So one night, it's a hot summer night, the windows were open so we could hear what's happening in the backyard. We heard this kerfuffle, right? Um, heard this uh, growling, hissing of a cat and then these birds squawking. I'm like, oh no. So I ran downstairs as fast as I could wearing nothing but my jammies and I grabbed my kid's BB gun and I ran outside thinking, man, I am gonna protect this little baby chick bird that we fell in love with. And I got out there, everything was silent. And I was thinking to myself, oh, there's no way this little bird made it. And that night, and this was no exaggeration, I just was, I was depressed. Like our little baby bird just, became a dinner snack for a, for a cat. 
Well, to complete the story, because the ending really doesn't have anything to do with the sermon, it's more what I felt in the process. Um, we went out the next day, and there the little guy was, just still hopping around. Mom and dad had done his job protecting that little guy, and we actually got to watch it go from hopping to kind of flying from light to light, like a little yard light to yard light, and pretty soon it was gone. It was amazing. But I, I felt, and you can maybe put a different animal's face on it, felt compassion and felt mercy. It's amazing that God has given every single human being, regardless of their religious persuasion or their culture or where they come from, He's given us this human capacity for, for compassion, feelings of compassion, feelings for, of pity, feelings of, of mercy. And that's one of the characteristics that Jesus says is true of his disciples, is this idea of mercy. Now, we've been looking at these Beatitudes, and to put them behind me, just in case you're new, or even if you're not new, maybe it'll be good to be repeated, just, Realize the first four Beatitudes, I did the first three, Adam did the, the fourth one on what it means to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Uh, the first four really have to do with a disciple and his own need, right? You look at the word poor, mourn, meek, and hunger. Those all connote a sense of, of need or lack. But when it comes to the fifth one, mercy, now we're not talking about a disciple's own sense of need in his own soul. Now we're talking about how a disciple cares for the needs of other people. It's relational. That a disciple is merciful. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now before I continue, let me just tell you what I hope you know. And that is these Beatitudes of Jesus... They are not prescriptions. They are not new laws or rules to try and live up to. A prescription is like when a doctor says, here, take this, make it happen. Um, these are not prescriptions. These are descriptions. There's a, there's a difference. Or I think of these Beatitudes as a kind of a profile, a profile of a disciple. Most of us have seen enough crime shows to know what a profiler is, somebody who's able to kind of outline the personality of a person that they're looking for. Well, these Beatitudes basically lay out the profile of what a true follower of Jesus is like. It's, it's, it's who God is making them to be. This is the characteristic description of true, authentic discipleship. So this is a profile, and part of the profile is this thing called mercy. But what exactly does that mean? Now, I'm, gonna, I'm just going in two directions this morning, and they're connected to each other. I want to drill down into what it means to be merciful in the way Jesus intended. And then secondly, I want to look at the second part, which is the promise, for they shall receive mercy. Because it seems, just on the surface of it, that a merciful life may earn you mercy in the future. In which case, it seems a lot like works-based religion or salvation. So I just want to drill down into a definition of merciful, and then I want to finish with what does it mean and how is it that we receive mercy in the future based upon mercy now? That's kind of the two directions. So, so back to the question of definition. And it's an important one because, like I said, everybody who is human feels a sense of compassion and mercy. And I would argue even the hard, hardest, the hardest criminal still has a sense of mercy if, if it's even for his child or his mother or his grandmother, that every single human being has the capacity of, of, of compassion. I mean, 
Don't tell me you don't feel compassion when you look at the sad face of a a child or um, a fuzzy bunny with sad eyes or a a basset hound or or a gerbil or, you know, there's so many things that solicit a sense of compassion. Do you remember those, uh, there's a commercial that was run years ago. Um, it was from the ASPCA, I think it was ASPCA, and it had Sarah McLaughlin on it, right? Singer, loves, she's a melancholy tune, The Answer, I will be the answer, soft melancholy music. At the end of the line, and there's pictures of, of kittens, and then there was this one of this golden lab that has a gimpy leg that walks off the, the mat with, in slow motion with the melancholy song and just makes you want to cry and pull out your checkbook and go, I'll direct you whatever you want, right? Like, our culture is, is masterful. We have engineered um, the art of pulling at the heartstrings of compassion and mercy in people, regardless of whether they're Christian or not. Which is why definition is so important. What does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the merciful? Are, are, are the people who, who simply feel compassion? Is this a feeling thing? Um, feel that sentimental desire to care for the need of something? I think Jesus has far more than feelings in mind here. So let me just start with what you might call it like a generic definition of mercy that most anybody would agree with, and then I want to build on it and dry, uh, conclude with a, a Christian definition of mercy. At a very basic level, mercy is fulfilling the need or remitting the debt for someone or something. That is, mercy is meeting a need, showing a kindness, or remitting a debt. That's on a very basic level. So let me build from... Question one, is it a feeling? No, it's not just a feeling. How about an action? Does what Jesus have in mind here is like, blessed are the merciful, those who act mercifully, who like pull out the checkbooks and write checks for Save the Whales Foundation or, you know, caring for orphans in Somalia. Is that, is that what he has in mind, the action, mere action? To which, again, we'd have to say No. If we know anything about this whole sermon, it's about how important the heart is for the believer. That Christianity is not just about the outward actions, including mercy. So we get to chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. Jesus talks about the practice of mercy, and he connects it to the heart. He says, when you give to the needy, let me stop right there, the phrase, give to the needy, translates the same root word as mercy. In chapter 5, verse 7. Right, Wade? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Time for Greek Bible today. <laughs> I can get away with anything. Same Greek word. In other words, when you do your acts of mercy or the giving of alms, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. He's telling us that right action, which is the giving of alms or the giving to the needy, but with the wrong heart is hypocrisy. It's right action driven by right motivation, right action driven by the right heart. It's mercy with the right inward compulsion. They have to be connected, otherwise it's hypocrisy. So if our actions of mercy are driven by the desire to have our name on a headline or have somebody write a documentary about us or have people feel about us that 
that we are philanthropic. Well, and Jesus would say that's nothing more than pride-driven hypocrisy. It's not just the action of mercy, of fulfilling a need, giving a kindness, or remitting a debt. It's more than that. It's heart with action. And I think in the context of the New Testament and the Old Testament, at the very heart of true mercy is the, the sum of the entire law of the commandments of to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is mercy driven by love for neighbor and love for God. When that's the case, then heart and action are aligned. And then you have mercy. So it's not just feeling. It's not just action. It's the heart and action. But let's, let's ask another question. And this is the question that's going to kind of put the, the plow into the earth a little bit. And if you find yourself hating what I say, give me a chance to explain. What about the limitations of mercy? That is in terms of who we show mercy to. It's easy to show mercy to the frail, to the vulnerable, to the weak, to the lovable, to the cute, to the cuddly, to the cozy. Man, you can show me a picture of a harp seal, and I can feel it. It'd be easy for me to write a check for a harp seal. But here's the question. What about the ugly? What about the morally evil? What about that? What about mercy toward a transvestite? Or a jihadist Muslim? Hamas, Hezbollah. What about that? Now, or let's, let me just drop another one that you're just going to even hate even more. What about a pedophile? At this point, you might be thinking, or at the very least feeling, oh, you're going too far. Maybe you wouldn't say it that way, but maybe you're thinking it or you're feeling it. It's like, wait a second. Is, is that what Jesus has in mind? Is, is, is that we are to, with our heart and action, show kindness to people who commit criminal activity? That offends me. It offends my sense of morality. It offends my sense of what's right, what's wrong. And, and here let me just offer you what I think is happening in our culture and how easily we buy into it. We easily think of morality in two tiers. Or should I say immorality in two tiers? It's just picture, if you will, uh, two lists. We'll call this the blacklist and the gray list. The blacklists are basically... Culturally, the unforgivable sins, the unreformable sins. And, and in the gray list are the forgivable, tolerable, and, and restorable sins. Like, just think, two categories, black and gray. Whether people articulate it or think it that way, it, that exists in our culture. So, on the gray side, these are the forgivable, um, restorable, at some level, tolerable sins. So, you can be guilty of insider trading, be convicted, 
forgiven and restored to your own TV show. That's, it, it's true. You could be a liar as a leader, and the public may not like it, but you can stay in office. It's part of the gray side. You can be a prostitute or a porn star and still be forgivable, restorable, and at sub-level, tolerable. That's our culture. Now, you may disagree with me on the particulars of the list, but by and large, I think what you, I'm saying you know is correct. But then there's the blacklist, the other side, where we see things like white supremacist, unforgivable, right-offable, no mercy, racist, the jihadist Muslim, or the pedophile. If we are guilty of thinking that the people in the gray list should have mercy, but the people in the black list should never receive mercy from Christian people, then I submit to you that we see the world through the eyes of culture and not through the eyes of Jesus. Not through the eyes of, of Christ. And, and here's what I mean by that. And now let me show you that this is what he has in mind when he talks about mercy. It's not just blessed are the merciful who are merciful towards the cute and cuddly and easy and frail and weak, although we should feel compassion and extend compassion to the, that category as well. When you get to chapter 9 of Matthew, just a couple chapters from now, Jesus does some remarkable things that were, may I say, culturally egregious in his day. In the, in, the, in the text of Matthew chapter 9, we're told that a paralytic comes up to him and, and wants to be healed. And instead of healing his paralysis, he looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. And everybody gets in an uproar because he's forgiven a man's sins as if, as if Jesus has the authority of God to forgive. And then he heals his paralysis. But the very next scene, Jesus walks up to a tax booth where a man by the name of Matthew the tax collector is sitting. And he says to him, follow me. Now, as much as you may not like the IRS, especially during this season, it was nothing compared to the conception or the notion of a tax collector in Jesus' day. That is, they were known for what I'm going to call financial perversion, for exploitation, for oppression, thuggery, of taking as much as possible from people and leaving them destitute, which is why they were on the blacklist. They weren't on the gray list. They were on the blacklist. You put yourself in the first century and watch a tax collector with a couple of henchmen walk into your parents, your aging parents' house, and take what remaining money they have and leave with no money left for bread or food, you would be livid. And yet that's the very person Jesus walks up to in a horrifying breach of etiquette with culture, and he says, follow me. Be my disciple. I mean, of, of all the mercies shown, he asks the 
tax collector, be an apostle. And not only that, but the text goes on to say that then he went and had dinner with a whole bunch of them and known sinners. These, these aren't sinners in the generic, unharmful sense. These are sinners who have hurt people, who have left a wake of damage and pain. It's like, and Jesus is there with them, eating. And the Pharisees and the religious people of the day, who they're outraged. They're like, how can he possibly do this? He's consorting with the blacklist people. And he says this to the religious. He says, go and learn what this means. Because you have a lesson to learn. I desire, here he quotes Hosea 6, 6, the Old Testament prophet. I, God, desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous. In this case, these are the righteous blinded by pride and self-righteousness. But sinners, I, I, I came to rescue these people. I came for the people in the blacklist. Not just the blacklist, graylist and blacklist. You don't understand mercy is what he's saying. Because here's the thing. In order for the Pharisees to think like this, they had to have a two-tier system too. They had their two lists. A Pharisee of Jesus' day, he knew it was a sinner. I mean, he went to the temple and did his, his, his sacrifices, and he would watch uh, Yom Kippur happen. He'd understand that the, the, the priest is making a, um, atonement for sin because he knows he's a sinner. But he, real, he thinks of himself on the gray side. He, he, he has a blacklist, and that blacklist is tax collectors. The whole, if, if we have in our our. our, 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 our approach our sight, our, our view of people, that there are these unstated, embedded two tiers, the gray list and the black list, it is fundamentally and intrinsically pharisaical. Jesus at this point just destroys it. So this is why I came. And he doesn't just see them as, as evil or, or doers of evil, which they would have done. But he recognizes there's ignorance in their sin. That they're lost, they're blind, they're in need of, of, of being helped out of their slavery, out of their blindness, out of their addiction to sin. They're, they need my help. I'm here for the sinners. And the interesting thing is, the disciples are then called into the mission work of doing what Jesus did, is going to the sick, which means you go to the people on the gray and the black list because the list is just really one list. You see? Jesus' disciples are going to do the same thing he did. There's not going to be a differentiation between, well, this is kind of the acceptable side of the list, and this is the unacceptable side of the list. I'm going to stick with the grays, not with the black list. That's hypocrisy. You see that? This is, like, this is the kind of mercy he's talking about. This is, this is the kind of mercy that... You might be thinking in your, your heart, Dan, you did go too far. I, I can't, I, this is not me. I can't do this. Well, I, I told you this list is not prescriptive. It's descriptive. It's a profile. In and of yourself, apart from God, apart from grace, apart from the spirit of God, you can't live this way. You can't from the heart 
feel and give and act compassionately towards somebody, especially on the blacklist. You can't. But that's where the miracle of the new covenant comes into play, right? Did you hear what Wayland read? The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31 said, the day is coming when, when my law, my Torah, which declares my ways, my love, my mercy, my justice. It's, the time is coming when my law will not be written on tablets of stone like in Moses' day, but they're going to be written in the inner recesses of the soul of a human being. That is, I'm going to bring them to life. I am going to put love and mercy in their hearts. It's going to come from me. It's going to come from my spirit. And I am going to pay for the sins of my people so the spirit can inhabit my people through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the new covenant. God enables the disciple to actually live this way. It comes from something deeper than you. After all, we're just poor in spirit which means it comes from the power of the kingdom, the power of Christ at work in us. And I submit to you that like one of the, the basic foundational pr- principles of Christianity is of being born again is coming to the realization of these two unavoidable truths. On the one hand, I truly am poor in spirit. You see yourself for who you are. That's beatitude number one. You recognize that the roots of sin, all of it goes into your heart. You are capable of every sin committed at atrocious levels. The seeds are all there. You see it for what it is, and at the same time, you see the immeasurable abundance of God's mercy shown to you through Jesus Christ. And that intersection of those two things creates a humility and a gratitude and a mercy that can only be, be explained by the gospel itself. If there's an inability to, to feel and show mercy, even if it's only in the form of praying for your enemy, then perhaps you've lost sight of the fact that you are poor in spirit. Maybe you think of yourself now as a little bit better in spirit. And maybe the mercy that you feel that God has shown you is somehow smaller than it really is. You know, I shared this with a couple of people. These, these, um, these Beatitudes are kind of... I have a hard time with some of them. And, and the first one in particular. You know, I'm the preacher. But I'm not supposed to just preach. I'm supposed to listen too. And um, I woke up two, three, I don't remember exactly, it was the middle of the night. And I just kept thinking about this poor in spirit, poor in spirit. And, you know, the, the Bible itself says that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It's living and it's active. And, and I experience that activity because it, it, it starts to question. It starts to create a conversation in me and it starts to... Um, agitate, and I, I, I woke up in the middle of the night, I'm thinking about poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, and, and I sensed the spirit asking me the question through the truth, are you poor in spirit? And I responded, well, of course I am. <laughs> I, sometimes, you know, I disagree with my wife, sometimes I say selfish things, sometimes I say hurtful things, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm poor in spirit, and he goes, <laughs> now let's just look a little closer. And it was like, it was, it was the weirdest thing in the middle of the night, like the spirit of God through the truth of God, Say, so let's go on a little, a little exploration of the rooms of your heart. 
Open door number one. Do you have inappropriate fears and insecurities? I had to say, yes, I do. Door number two. Do you have some unresolved anger? I do. Are there areas of discontentment in your life? Yeah, there there are places of jealousy and envy. It's like going right through the house of my heart. And and this is all happening at night as that simple phrase, poor in spirit, is being driven home. And finally, I kind of had enough, and I'm like, okay, yes, I, I see my poverty. And the Lord doesn't show us those things. He doesn't want us to see those things simply to shame us. He wants to remind us, well, for he wants to humble us with it. But secondly, he wants us to then look back at the mercy of God and realize, man, but God being rich in mercy. If we forget the poor poverty of spirit, we never grasp the immensity of, of mercy. And I think we have to constantly see our, our, ourselves with two alternate lenses. You know, on the one hand, we like to look at ourselves through the lens of saint. Like, I see myself as a saint. Like, that's because God has declared me righteous based upon the faith I have in Jesus Christ, my perfect righteousness. And that's, 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 that's the victorious perspective I have on life. And yet there's this other lens that Paul the Apostle seems to have where he says, I'm, I'm, I am, present tense, chief of sinners. And between those two perspectives of chief of sinners, he understood how impoverished he was. And the amazing gift of sainthood and being a child of God is this gargantuan, immeasurable, infinite distance called mercy. And those two lenses fill the heart with gratitude and joy and humble us to actually give mercy when we see those two things. How is your heart? This is, this is go-against-the-grain kind of living. This goes against culture. So here, let me just seal this up in a definition. I said we're going to drill down towards a definition that I think works. This is a Christian mercy, as I understand it from the Gospel of Matthew. The mercy is the spirit-empowered response to Christ's mercy and my sinfulness that enables us to willingly, that is from the heart, not coerced, I'm not manipulated to do it, and actively bestow kindness and or forgiveness to someone who does not deserve it for the good of the person and the pleasure of God. It comes from God in response to the mercy of Jesus. It creates a willingness to actively show kindness and mercy to people who don't deserve it for the sake of their good and ultimately for the pleasure of God himself. I encourage you to maybe write that down and maybe just think about it. Is this, is this definition at any level true of your life? Now let me just answer one objection before I finish this off. Actually, it's kind of a multi, maybe one objection with a several parts. Let me just say this. That this kind of mercy does not mean acceptance. This kind of mercy does not mean we accept something that we know is wrong as somehow right. 
That's not mercy. Mercy still sees sin as sin. Evil is evil. Right and wrong as right and wrong. Nor does mercy preclude anger. As I've said previously, anger is a moral response to evil. Where there is injustice, we will feel anger. But anger and mercy are not mutually exclusive. Anybody who has teenagers knows this. (laughs) You can be angry and feel a deep pity at the same time. So when we find ourselves confronting evil in our world and we find ourselves angry, there should also be a sense of, ah, Lord, Spirit of Jesus, Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They're ignorant and lost and blind. Mercy does not be the absence of anger. And here's the, 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 the other piece of it that's really important to grasp and lodge into your mind. Mercy and justice must always remain inseparably together. They're not the same thing, but they're... N- they are necessarily to be a part of the disciple's life. Think about it. If all we have is mercy without justice, then we end up with this kind of mushy, spineless, I don't know what to call it, that'll end up either having somebody walk on you like a carpet, or if you offer this kind of Mercy without justice, the recipients of it often become entitled and enabled because there's no regard for the justice of it. That's mercy without justice. At the same time, you can't have justice without mercy. It's cold, it's calculated, it's loveless. The two must remain together. If a, if a police officer pulls out his baton or his... Or his his sidearm to protect a widow from a gang member or a gang. He, he pursues justice in pursuit of mercy. When Jesus went to the cross, he went there to satisfy justice so we could have mercy. The cross, both of them come together so that you have a merciful justice and a just mercy. So, Our responsibility as we navigate as disciples in this world is to keep those two together and understand how does mercy and justice work in my family? How does it work in my job? How does it work in my world? I can't separate those two. Hopefully, those concepts help relieve some of the objection there may be in the room of just mercy, mercy, mercy as acceptance or can't be angry. It's not like that. So, how is your heart? This is, this is strong stuff. Like I said, Jesus' words are provocative. They, they don't just leave us where we've been. They're taking us somewhere. So what about this last part? How does this promise fit in? They shall receive mercy. That's the second part. At some level, this is supposed to motivate us. Present tense followed by the future tense. Blessed are the merciful now, for they shall receive mercy. What does that mean? 
Because it sure seems like God's future mercy, and I think he's talking about final judgment here, when everybody's raised from the dead and everything's scattered out and everything's looked at and evaluated. Does it mean that if I do enough merciful acts now that I'll get mercy later? Like, I just keep thinking about the Boy Scouts or the military where every time you do something good, you get like a patch. Let's call it a mercy patch. You know, Save the Whales Foundation, patch number one. Feeling good about myself. I volunteer at the tutoring center, and that's a good thing. Patch number two. I volunteer at Mission Solano, patch number three. And you go on and on and on, and pretty soon it's like, well, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I have got mercy patches all over the place. Is, 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 is that what's going on here? And of course, we'd have to say absolutely not. I mean, let's not forget beatitude number one, that the people who give mercy are the ones who are poor in